everyone, and welcome back to That's So Second Millennium. I'm Bill Smith, and I'm joined again by Dr. Paul Giesing, um, whose Ph.D. in geology is just the start of his interesting background uh, that is uh, informed and interested in things faith-based and scientific-based. And in our last episode, we had a very neat uh, kind of coming together of stories from uh, earlier episodes where I was seeing more similarities between the development of physics in the late second millennium, uh, the movement from physics, uh, traditional physics into quantum physics on the one hand, and the Christ story, the Christian story, on the other hand. And so, Paul, um, I wanted to follow up on that first and foremost. Basically, I'm very interested, as many people are now, uh, in the uh, phenomenon uh, in our uh, high schools, or just among our, our young people in general, where our culture is teaching them that science and religion are totally incompatible. And uh, what I saw in the last episode was, at the very least, a resonant uh, similarity and something that would be very compelling to young people, kind of empowering ideas about how how we uh, we we grow and and change and uh, that is God's will for us. So, uh, what would you think about uh, how to bring this up uh, for further thought among the young people of today and the teachers of young people today? To, to to kind of make make a point through the stories we've been telling that religion and science are not incompatible. Right, and that uh, they aren't the opposite ends of a spectrum of how to think about things, as you put it earlier. Um, yeah, yeah, that's I mean that's incredibly important. Um, I guess the first thing that comes to mind is to think about you know what the nature of the problem is. Part of it is just how ready we human beings are to look for conflict between things and to assume that things are, you know, a quote that I, you know, heard in high school, I think, and didn't necessarily think much of until I was a little more careful about it. Was it Emerson, uh, the, uh, the a foolish inconsistent or a foolish consistency is the hobgoblin of little minds? Oh, uh, yeah. Like a- yeah probably heard that somewhere. It sounds proto-Chestertonian in some ways. And of course, the key to that, of course, is foolish, which is what I didn't pick up on at first, a foolish consistency that things have to, in some naive sense, look consistent um, as opposed to, you know, merely being in some sort of tension that, you know, you're going to have to balance the two. You're going to have to do some work to see the path where both of those are true at the same time. Right. Um, and then people, you know, I, I think there's a, a great 
tendency, you know, and even even and especially, I mean, so you you have your scientists, so to speak, not science, but scientism, where yeah, you, where you basically take your science and treat it as a dogma, and that's a sign that you must not really have all that firm an idea where it comes from, because that's of course exactly not how science works, um, and usually yeah. even. The dogmas, and there are many dogmas out in the secular world. Um, Catholic dogmas are pretty mild in comparison to a lot of the dogmas that are out there in the political world, on you know both the left and the right. And they're, 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 they sometimes tend to be especially strong among people who would argue they don't have any dogmas at all, and that they dislike dogmas, but they they oh, don't yeah. realize they have their own, yeah. Yeah, they're, they're profoundly dogmatic about being non-dogmatic, yes. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. And they pride themselves on that. But, uh, <laughs> well, so, I mean, so we, we obviously were playing on uh, a theme that we've already, you know, talked about last episode about, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a critical process. It's not that dissimilar from a person, you know, shifting one, from one scientific paradigm to another to a person undergoing a conversion process. So what, you know, the problem is when you have a, a naive either religion or scientific paradigm where you have, you know, you've just imbibed it and you've never really probed the foundations or asked yourself all that hard a question. And how can you, how could you package that into a curriculum? Of course, that's, you know, now, now we're going to run up against Paul's allergy to the word program or curriculum. Uh -huh. We're going to have a program right. for this. Oh, that makes sense. Yeah, that's happen. not always the best approach to solving a problem, yes. <laughs> that's just absolutely makes my ackles, right? It's it's just uh yeah. We want there to be a set right answer. And there are places where there can be set right answers, but ah uh, yeah. Uh, so everyone's going to come at every every student in your high school, you know, the we're at a Catholic high school, let's say, which of course I have no experience with. Never went. I went to a public high school way out here in the middle of nowhere in Indiana. Um, I would have huh. had to go. I would have had to go 50 miles to find a Catholic high school. Um, wow. I, you know that, that, that was that was simply not going to happen. Mm -hmm. um, so I'm trying to imagine what a Catholic high school is even like. I think I have some idea, but it's you know what what. Every student in that class is there for a different reason. You know, their parents are sending them to this high school for a different reason. They have a different level of fervor, and you know, the the really fervid ones have both good and bad reasons for being, you know, religiously enthusiastic in whatever way that they are. They're being they're being faithful in some ways, and they're being hypocritical Christians in other ways. Um, right. You know, there's different. You know, and, and it, of course. Because we're human, it gets all, all wadded up with our politics, right? And there's yeah. enormous confusion between political doctrines and religious doctrines, and people are very ready to identify, you know, to just blindly identify with both, you know, their faith and their political party, and the ah, and and all of that together. So, but what what principles? Okay, so let's get back to that, you know. What at least would we want, what, what common elements do we think most of the students would need to hear? So, you know, yeah. both philosophy of science and philosophy of religion. 
so this is another another one of you know the things that uh, Stephen Bard talks about in Modern Physics and Ancient Faith. That book I finally finished it last night. It's sitting here waiting for me to review on Goodreads um, after we're done Excellent. here. And he so remember talks that, about, listeners, you can find Paul on Goodreads. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Um, so that that is an issue that he talks about. You know, the whole question of what is a dogma and why are he brings it up multiple times. He brings it up again at the end. You know, why are people so allergic to the word or the concept of a dogma? What is that? What? And it's it's the idea that you know religious people say, oh, that's a mystery. And I and of course, you know. There are probably there are you could find large numbers of religious people probably who would treat things this way this in this erroneous way, but oh this is a mystery so we're just supposed to stop thinking now, which yeah. is not what a religious mystery really is certainly not what it needs to be, that's certainly right. not an understanding of what needs to be you know so so let's take you know the core one of the Trinity right so right. what does it mean yeah. for us to talk about that being a mystery. It means that we're, we're confident we, you know, for us to call something a mystery, it means basically that it is dogmatically true for us to say we're never going to have a complete rational explanation for it in this life. Right. Okay. Now the problem with saying that that's, you know, inc completely incompatible with science is that, I mean, especially modern science, especially especially post 20th century physics is that yeah, as yeah. a matter of fact we have all kinds of things that um, we actually have pretty you know rigidly prodded at solid ideas to believe there's a bar below which we can't go we're not yeah. going to get to probe the structure to the bottom we're only going to be able to hopefully draw out some indirect, you know, so, so think of the whole concept of string theory, right. which is tricky because <laughs> it's, a, it's right. a slippery bastard, sorry, but uh, it's, <laughs> it's, a, it's a wreck. Uh, it's a very, very uh, difficult theory, and people have been working on it since, what, the early 80s, I believe, as, as far as, you know, that this is going to be the next thing that takes it, but, but, it's, but it all happens below the level at which you can do an experiment. You can only yeah. very indirectly, if at all, probe string theory with the result that it has sort of maundered along and it's really almost become a philosophy, a very highly, um, a philosophy with an awful lot of mathematical symbols and machinery, but mm -hmm. it's a philosophy. It's not something we can go and test by experiment. Yeah. It's going to be very difficult mm -hmm. and very indirect. And so, you know, how is that? How much different is that from a mystery? You know, in in that yeah. sense of, you know, and and it's not that the you know to say that the 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 Trinity is a mystery is not at all to say that we can't engage in philosophical discussion and argument about it, and that we can't in fact, you know, get to the point where rationally we conclude that certain things cannot be true about it. You know, the, yeah. the, the whole via negativa we can. We can yeah. we can yeah. prove that things can't be true of the Trinity. That, right. that certain things are oversimplifications or errors in some other sense. Things that can't possibly tr be true because they break the laws of logic. Which of course the concept right. of the Trinity is you know depending on how you formulate it 
you could definitely formulate it in a way that, you know, violates the law of non-contradiction if you're not very subtle about it. Uh. Or, or the incarnation, you know, the whole, the whole debate that people write off as unimportant. I mean, it's, it's one of those things that, oh, and you know, all of this blood that, you know, you wring your hands about the folly of religious people that they, you know, they, they spilled all this ink and got into all these actual conflicts about, you know, the nature of Christ, the divine and right. human nature of Christ, whether it, you know, whether he had one, you know, whether he was, whether he was really divine, whether he was really human, whether he had a human yeah. will and a divine will, all of those things. Yeah. Well, whereas, of course, you know, if you think about it long enough, you can actually see lots of reasons why that's a, you know, if, if this person is anything like what he said he was, then, you know, it makes a difference whether he was really God or not. You know, it makes a difference whether God set up this universe and then just sort of let us, you know, wander around and suffer, or whether he at least gave us the assurance that he came down and joined with us. You know, there, there are definitely consequences to that. But to come back to the idea of science and religion, you know, that's one aspect where they're not, you know, the, this whole question of there are questions, you know, even just in a practical sense, you know, I look at my life and I get very frustrated because I know I'm not going to live long enough <laughs> for all the answers to be discovered so that I can learn them. This frustrates me a lot, actually. Uh, uh, interesting. Knowing, knowing that people after I die are going to get the chance to know more about the structure, you know, the internal structure of the earth, that people after yeah. I die are going to get to know more than I'll ever have gotten to know about how Venus, you know, turned into this hothouse planet with 80 bars or 100 bars or whatever it is of carbon dioxide and the you know, surface temperature that's yeah, around a point where med, well, well oh, okay. where lead would melt. Let me get my uh, consonants in the right place. Uh, uh -huh. you know, 450 degrees or whatever it is at the Celsius at the surface of Venus. Um, you know, people are going to know things that I'm not going to get to know. And everyone doing scientific research, you know, I think the vast majority of them, it's implicit. You know, quite a few people, it probably stays implicit for practically their whole life. But it's always there and available for you to think about. I'm not going to get to know. And, and science, yeah. the project of science has gone on long enough for us to look back and remark on just how unbelievably ignorant people were in previous centuries about <laughs> right. whatever our field was and, and went yeah. around completely cocksure that, you know, basically we're just going to fill in a few more details around the corners and that's really going to be the end of the scientific project, at least in my particular subfield. I mean, it's, uh. it's, it's such a human problem. It's, it's such a weakness of the, of the human condition that we're so prone to. But yeah. what we do. And, and so, you know, in that sense, there's, you know, religious thinking about the concept of I am not going to know, you know, the depths of God. I am not going to get to know, you know, the, the fact that I can't spell out all of the details about what being itself has planned for me or how being itself is going to accommodate the results of my free choice into its plan is actually yeah. not that different from science. You know, knowing that I'm not going to know. Right. Um, but I'd rather, I'd rather have your, uh, I'd rather have the frustrations of your vibrant intellectual curiosity than what seems to be the more common problem today, at least the problem faced by many teachers in many schools, 
and that is a kind of indifference and lack of curiosity among so many people, especially when you mention a mystery. They say, well, why waste time with a mystery? Uh, and at the same time, they say, well, why waste time with a dogma that seeks to clarify? Uh, everybody's kind of trapping themselves in some middle territory that's not going to bear fruit either now or in the future. Right, right. Well, so the, so the other side, you know, another thing we can look for possible parallels that people don't really take into account. You know, what is, what is the, is there an, is there actually an analog between a religious dogma as we understand it, say in the, in the Christian church and the Catholic church um, and anything that goes on in science? And of course, a lot of people, you know, their gut instinct is to say, well, of course not. That's not how science works. There can't be dogmas. Yeah, maybe. Um, let me propose this. So mm -hmm. part of the problem depends on the particular subfield of science that you're in. If you're a chemist or a particle physicist, you know, you crank up your experimental apparatus, you make the, uh, you make the conditions just so, and you see what happens. And you are, you know, you're exerting the maximum possible control, you know, the maximum feasible control consistent with the amount of grant money that you have uh, on the system and see what the answers are. That's experimental science. It's not the only kind of science. There's an enormous number of things that we know only as a result of observational science. So right. we cannot, you know, I just alluded to one a question, such question earlier. We cannot put Venus in our laboratory and run the experiment over again, right? Right. <laughs> we literally can't do that. Um, you know, in, in the pursuit of observational science, you do all kinds of experiments, and more and more as time has gone on. So, for example, if I want to know, you know, so, so I do an experiment. Well, I don't do an experiment. I'm sorry. I do an observation. So in seismology. So I set up a seismometer, and first of all, I wait. <laughs> I wait for the divinity or the federal government uh, to either set off an earthquake or a nuclear test, either of, <laughs> neither of which do I have control over. And then I monitor with my, you know, with my seismic network, my seismometers in, say, you know, Los Angeles and San Francisco and Las Vegas and, you know, several other places, Honolulu, hopefully. Hopefully I get to go visit Honolulu and, and pick up the recordings. Um, That's good. That's good. Uh, ideally. But, uh, but you know, and so I see, you know, I look at the times when I see the seismometer start shaking as a result of this event. You know, I, I know generally, you know, based on time, this is the only thing that's happened in this period of time that's large enough to cause these things to start shaking. You know, several several other uh, observations and assumptions go into it, and I start calculating. And I realize that, you know, these, these observations only make sense if there's a layer about 400 kilometers down inside the Earth where there's a sudden uptick in the rate at which earthquake waves, basically sound waves, um, it's more complicated inside a solid than it is in the air, but uh, fundamentally we're dealing, we're still ju just dealing with vibrations of matter. Um, I know there's some reason why things, you know, take us, the, there, there's a step up, there's a big step up in speed and things can reflect off of that. Other waves will actually travel through that layer and I can confirm indirectly 
<laughs> very indirectly with a lot of data. There's a lot of statistics mm -hmm. and a lot of data processing used in seismology to come to these conclusions. Um, but, there, but there's a layer between, you know, below 400 kilometers down inside the Earth where the thing speeds up. Well, then I'm going to go back to the laboratory and see if I can calculate. Well, first of all, I'll calculate what the pressure must be if there's X amount of rock. And, of course, I get a number that's really big, really big. Uh, yeah. And then I go, okay, well, how can I reproduce this? What is the closest thing I can do? I know what I'll do. I'll take two diamonds and I'll cut the tips off so that there's about a square micron on either side and I will ram them together with a thumb screw and because pressure is force divided by area that will be so high in pressure that I can get this little patch of a square micron of material up to that pressure. This is, okay. by the way, actually what's done. It's called a diamond anvil cell. Um, it's what you know, things of that pressure Things of that pressure range are done with those. And there's a lot of problems with that experimental setup, but it's a hell of a lot better than nothing. So, right. so that, um, you do that, and you start observing. So you take a scrap of, you know, the mineral olivine, which is the most common mineral in the, in the mantle based on things that uh, volcanoes cough up for us to look at, little pieces of the mantle. They tend to be nice, gemmy green uh, masses of olivine yeah. with some other black yeah. minerals in them. So we have that, you know, meteorite information also tells us to suspect that. So we, so we squeeze that mineral, and lo and behold, somewhere around 400, uh, the, the pressure that corresponds to about 400 kilometers down, we see that that mineral actually changes crystal form. We find out hmm. that that actually happens. But we would never have bothered to do that experiment if we didn't have that observational information. And, and again, there's so much that we can't control. So we can do right. experiments here and there along the way to help us along with observational science. So if we're, if we're interested in Venus, we can, in fact, make a little bitty chamber and put some rock that we think is like the surface of Venus in with a bunch of carbon dioxide and a little bit of sulfuric acid and let it go for a while and see what happens. So we can do little things like that, but we can't run the whole process in our laboratory. Okay, so I went yeah, through all yeah. that. So we get information from the universe that we cannot, we're not in control of. We can't just create it for wanting to. We have to go look for it, and we have to be patient and accept what the universe is actually willing to give us. What's yeah. a dogma? All right, let's go back to that question. What's a dogma? What is a, what is a Christian dogma? Why is it a dogma that this Jesus Christ, this Jesus of Nazareth guy, you know, rose from the dead? Well, it's an yeah. observation that we can't go back and repeat. So we'd better hang on to it because otherwise we'd have lost information. You know, this is testimony that was given to us. We're, we can't run that experiment again. Right. And that's, you know, so, so the other dogmas, you know, there are things that for one reason or another we believe have been told to us. We're not, we don't have control over the situation to go back and make that observation again just for wanting to. We can't. We can't put the Virgin Mary in a, you know, experimental chamber and, you know, watch her, watch her conception, <laughs> see if anything yeah, right. happens. We have, we, you know, dogma is, at least, you know, speaking as a Christian and speaking with, with what I'm familiar with, um, the dogmas are things that have been told to us by, you know, and, they, and they're, they fulfill a role that's not completely dissimilar from 
things that we can observe. You know, so we go out in the fossil record, we can't recreate the entire evolution of dinosaurs just for wanting to. We have to go and look at the rocks that we have and look at the fossils that we have and do our best to reconstruct what happened without being able to run the experiment over. We don't have that level of control. We have to be obedient and patient and, and accept what reality has chosen to show us. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, it sounds like we, we need to challenge the idea that may be occurring among many people, uh, including uh, students, that science is this realm where we actually have a lot of control, whereas religion is a realm where we have no control and only dogma. That's mm-hmm. a duality that's much too simplistic. Yeah, that's that's a gross oversimplification. You know, religion yeah. may be an area where more of it is things that are given to us. And, well, I mean, you know, of course we don't have control, but the idea that we have control is not true in science either. That's, right. that's right. you know, that's, of course, that's just part of the of the fallen human condition, you know, from Adam and Eve yeah. on down, whatever the story of Adam and Eve, you know, what whatever level, you know, wherever that happened in whatever exact context. Um, it certainly it certainly testifies to what seems to be a, a truth of human nature that we want we, to pretend that we have a lot more control than we could possibly ever, you know, really believe that we have if we were being honest with ourselves. Yeah. And we don't we don't have that level of control in science either. That's interesting. But at the same time, in our past discussions, you've kind of softened the blow that we might feel about uh, not having so much control by pointing out another similarity or at least another parallel track uh, in both science and religion where it seems as though part of God's design is that we're not out of control um, and indeed there's this role of the observer there's this empowering idea of non-determinism and that uh, that just the act of exploring these notions in both science and religion is uh, uh, an empowering and energizing force for learning and uh, self-growth and and discovery and problem solving. So people shouldn't be turned off by this idea that we have no control, huh? Yeah. Yeah, that's, 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 you know, I had, I had let that uh, slip completely out of my consciousness. I'm glad you reminded me of that. I mean, that's, that's the other side of it. You know, that's a, that's a really major sort of summing up point that I think uh, Stephen Barr makes in his last chapter is that, you know, if you look at what we have to work with today and the best possible materialist interpretation of the world is one in which, well, among other things, you need to, you know, the, the, the sort of Heisenberg, uh, Heisenberg, the sort of the Copenhagen model of, of interpreting quantum mechanics really right. demands there be some sort of weirdly external observer to collapse the wave function and for us to see, you know, okay, 
I have I have waited for you know I've <laughs> stuffed Schrodinger's cat in the box. I have waited a little while, and now I'm going to open up the box and I'm going to collapse the wave function and see either a living cat or a dead cat. Right. Um, and the and the main way around that, in many people's opinion, is the many worlds hypothesis, which is to say. Well, no, there's, you know, there's just, you know, at every, every point in time, uh, everything is happening. And there's just a, you know, sort of quote-unquote thickness of the branches, I believe, is, um, you know, that in some sense the more probable things have a thicker branch, whatever that means. That's um, interesting, uh-huh. But all of the outcomes are actually happening. And so the universe is multiplying and multiplying and multiplying and multiplying. And so you have a situation, you know, so again, applying the Calvin and Hobbes criterion, where it was really pretty lame of physicists to call the beginning of the universe the Big Bang instead of the horrendous right. space bluey. Likewise, right. likewise, this theory deserves a much more dramatic name than the many worlds hypothesis. Mm. I mean, it's it's insane. It's literally, I mean. It beggars the imagination completely what reality is like in this interpretation. Mm. But the universe, there's actually a limitless, you know, I mean, I guess it's not probably technically limitless, but I mean, how many 10 to the what power number of universes and more 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 of them multiplying every time, you know, any event happens with any particle, particle, any subatomic particle in the entire universe, every last one of them is spawning these, you know, splits at every, you know, every Planck time, every 10 to the negative 40 whatever second, something mm -hmm. is happening. And, and yeah. we're, we're multiplying this many, you know, many more universes. And these people, you know, and these people stop at the notion of God, that's what hangs them up. Ooh, I mean, interesting. A yeah. Is, a lot of it is that people simply are still stuck at, you know, at the end, you know, in late 19th century thinking, you know, they really haven't cleared the, you know, the old school classical determinism out of their system in any way, um, have not grasped the fact that quantum physics demands that they clear that old notion out of their mind. And that you're, you're really, as, you know, to the best of our knowledge at any rate, we're either in a non-deterministic universe where, as I said, there is a, a hole big enough to drive a Mack truck through for your soul to actually, you know, a, a non-material entity of whatever kind to affect matter because right. it, can, it can simply juggle these probabilities. Or yeah. the many worlds hypothesis is, I think, in a lot of people's opinions, the best alternative out there to some form of the Copenhagen interpretation, which is the interpretation with that big hole in it with the, you know, the non-deterministic interpretation, you uh -huh. know, that's, that's, um, I, I, you know, we, so much of it on, on ultimately comes down to a matter of taste, you know, I mean, it's, well, I'd rather yeah. believe in that than, than believe in God. Well, once yeah. you got into the rather, I'm like, I don't know what I'm going to say about that. <laughs> uh. I've got it down to the, once we've gotten down to rather, it's like, okay, I mean, you'd rather believe in that, and I'd rather believe in, you know, the Father of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. All right, you know, uh, 
I'll just wait. Because, of course, you know, it's not under my control. I'll, I'll wait for this God that I believe in to do whatever he plans to do. And yeah. meanwhile, you can let your universe split, you know, another 10 to the 120th times this afternoon. <laughs> right, right. I don't know. Yeah, it's, kind of, it's, it's kind of exciting if you let yourself get into the uh, dynamics of it. A lot of people, I guess, are just kind of scared of such uh, dynamics of, uh, you know, constant change. Yeah, we don't want to go down. We 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 don't want to get uh, caught, you know, going that far down the 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 spiral of actually trying to think critically about things because it's scary down there. We have a sense. I that love it. it. Uh huh. We look too close. It's scary down there. There is a great yeah. documentary uh, '90s song um, by some, you know, I, I forget the woman's name, but you know, uh, philosophy to walk on slippery rocks religion is a smile on a dog or something like that. I mean, it's, it's rather <laughs> inelegant, uh, but it, uh, but it describes, you know, throw me in the shallow water before I get too deep. That's what I really, you know, that, that's the key line from that song. I don't really want to think about all of these things. I, I don't really, I, I don't want to go that far. Just, yeah. you know, let, let me, let me, let me live my secular life and, you know, chase the things that I already feel like chasing and and don't bother me with all of these details. Yeah. Oh boy, I think you put your finger on where a lot of people are nowadays. Perhaps they're not singing that particular song. It doesn't seem like a wonderfully memorable song, although it's, I'll look it it's, up on It's YouTube. way too memorable actually, Bill, if you were if you were 16 when it came out like I was. But But yeah, it has you, even when you turn on the even when you turn on a radio station that plays '90s music, you don't you don't hear that one as often as some of, some of its competitors. Uh, and it's probably just as well. <laughs> well, you know, Paul, we're uh, probably running toward the close of this episode, but it really did take us now into uh, this new area of discussion where we're I think we're opening doors. Uh, thanks to your observations of those parallel science and religion tracks, you're opening doors for uh, us to actually have an excitement about the dual study of the, the further exploration in both areas of science and religion, and indeed perhaps uh, faith and, and reason, and that we're, we, we should be open-minded uh, in both areas. Why don't we uh, save the next steps there uh, for our next episode? Yeah, yeah. I mean, we we had these two uh, these two question bundles that you had uh, given me, and I think we've uh, we only started uh, to address them. So we've got some more yeah, really, really interesting conversations yeah. to have about that. So perfect. All the more reason for an ongoing podcast. All uh, right. As they, as they said, <laughs> As they said in the next generation, uh, it's, uh, it's the ongoing mission, not just a five-year mission. It's that's ongoing. right, the continuing mission of the Starship exactly. Enterprise. Right. Yes. Exactly. exactly, yeah. Well, listeners, we're going to continue our own enterprise, namely this podcast, uh, and we will look forward to having you along with us on our trek uh, in uh, the coming weeks. And, Paul, thank you, as always, for this week's conversation. It's great to talk with you, Bill. Look, look forward to talking you with likewise. you again soon. Excellent. Take care. Thank you. You too. <laughs>